This is the second Sunday after Epiphany, and we have entered a mini green season, a few some Sundays in ordinary time until we go to Ash Wednesday, and then we begin the season of Lent. And the green Sundays in the, in the long part of the green season are about Christian discipleship, the cost, the ways and the means, uh, the nature of Christian discipleship. So that's true, too, for these green Sundays. But this period is, I think, tinctured with the Epiphany theme. And remember, last week I mentioned that in Epiphany, we celebrate the transference, in a sense, of the celebration of the presence of Christ to the church in Christmas. This sort of internal uh, uh, affirmation that we have about uh, who Jesus is for Christian people in the community of faith. And we do what I always say every year, the four affirmations, the goodness of our humanity, the fact that we can achieve the highest of our human potential, that it is possible for Christian people to be joyful and that we need to be people of peace. And we transfer that interior uh, circumstance now on Epiphany and seek to make it manifest. And we do that in two ways, both internally in our own uh, emotional, uh, mental, and spiritual life, and we do it as a community of faith called the church. So we make manifest the presence of Christ in each of us, figure out how to do that like I do, Jesus before my eyes in adoration, Jesus in my heart in communion, Jesus in my hands in cooperation, the classic Sulpician method where you begin to say here on a daily basis, this is how I intend to focus myself and to uh, put this in my hands. And then the church is the community of faith seeks to make manifest in relationship uh, how it relates to the world and in its proclamation of the gospel, the desire that we create a society where it is easier for people to be good. So the readings this time of year seem to me to have something to do with how the church has understood this idea of manifestation and how we have seen Jesus in direct continuity with God's historic plan for the cosmos. So today the three themes are about God's plan and purpose being centered in Jesus, Jesus as a servant, and by extension, how each one of us understand the issue of servant ministry, and the universality of the church and its importance. Because the three magi visited the infant Jesus as a sign that they believed that his birth had universal significance. And we don't mean this just in religious terms. We mean this in uh, every possible way that we can understand it. Many of the biblical writers, including our patron Luke, believed that history had been transformed by this event and that you and I are now living in a period that we would call the history of salvation. And one of the things that we learned about the history of salvation is that it isn't some sort of description of the way things are out there. But we come to the understanding that each one of us, valued by God, unconditionally accepted, loved, and forgiven, has a part to play and is part of the history of salvation. 
people in their prayer and in their reflection and in their worship over time come to the conclusion or have come to the conclusion in the great tradition of Christianity that their own personal history is part of the history of salvation. And they don't mean that uh, in a narcissistic way, although it certainly could become that. But the fact is that they see to it that they see, yes, you know, who I am and what I do is important and it's valued by God. And we wish to affirm that because each one of us is made in God's image. Today in the book of the prophet Isaiah, we have uh, what I think is called in biblical scholarship the second servant song in chapter 49. And it's speaking about uh, the servant. Uh, and in this case, here's, here's we say this, uh, reading the Old Testament, reading the Hebrew Bible. Isaiah is referring here not to Jesus. Christian people understood it to be Jesus. That is not an irresponsible understanding of it, knowing, of course, that in history it is the prophet who is being described here as the servant. But the early Christians saw recapitulated in the person of Jesus Christ this servant ministry. And in his words and in his works, we find him now connecting directly with what is in this servant song. The piece in this servant song that I like the best is where uh, Isaiah speaks about God's plan for the nations. And we see here that in the prophetic ministry of the prophet, we are involved in the process of recalling the people of Israel to the covenant of speaking about how return from exile is going to bring uh, a species of renewed understanding in terms of their vocation. But more to the point that God has revealed now through him as the prophet and through the people that this message isn't just for the people of the covenant and it isn't that vest them with special privileges. That this is for everybody, including the Gentiles. So being a light to the nations has something to do about God's inclusiveness, that God's un unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness is for everybody, including the Gentiles, and we see that in the teaching of Jesus. So, after the Christ event, Christian people, certainly from, from, from their, their background, let's say Jewish Christians would say, gee, if we'd have consulted our sacred texts, we would have come to realize that uh, in them is embedded um, some understanding of God's continuous presence. Some biblical scholars read this section uh, th or this part of Isaiah and say there's an element of predestination involved in this. And of course, for Christian people, uh, this raises the specter of you know those Christians who believe in double predestination and not predestination and yada da, yada da. And most of us aren't worried a whole lot about that these days anymore. There are some Christians who say we ought to be. But Episcopalians are not one of them, or most Episcopalians, about this. So what is meant here in the predestination sense really is a, a, a small hymn of praise that said God is present in the past, in the present, and in the future. 
so that we understand in some way uh, the continuity of God's work in the world. I'm a subscriber to the view, not all people are, that, you know, we, uh, when, certainly when I was in seminary, you heard a lot about Jesus uh, being countercultural and, and, and being sort of on the edge of everything and that he was saying all this stuff that was turning everything upside down and to be sure that's true on one level. But on another level, the reason why he was compelling and believable is that he stood squarely within the tradition out of which he came. People could draw conclusions and connections and connect the dots by virtue of his preaching and teaching. So they understood something uh, that was compelling because of their own understanding of the past, the present, and the future, and that continuity. You know, most of us don't find it easy to uh, connect to somebody who is so edgy that there is simply no reference point uh, that we can make, uh, either to our own personal history or to the history of the culture in which we find ourselves. And I think Jesus was capable of doing that, even though he said things that uh, put people's teeth on edge from time to time. So the reading from Isaiah is about the importance of understanding servanthood as being a continuous value that has moved through the people of God's understanding uh, through time. So servanthood doesn't mean uh, maybe the way we understand servanthood in popular terms. It means a kind of uh, collaboration with the whole of humanity. It means taking other people seriously. Uh, about uh, seven or eight years ago, there was a study in the Episcopal Church on uh, the most effective episcopates in the American Episcopal Church. And uh, in the last 25 years, those bishops that have both thrived and survived <laughs> in their sees were bishops who engaged in something that was called mutually accountable, collaborative, servant-driven ministry. And so what is being held up in front of us is a model of how, in terms of leadership, uh, one can be effective in a plural age, that we need to be collaborative, we need to be mutually accountable, and we need to be servant-driven, you know? That we are uh, uh, able to, to engage in some form of self-giving, and the baptismal covenant is the location for the way in which that is acted out by every Christian person. So when you read through it in the prayer book, you'll understand something about the nature of servant ministry. You know, servant ministry isn't the uh, groveling excess self-abnegation model. You know, it's like most people have a view of humility that is uh, self-effacing to a degree. And humility, certainly the medieval theologians understood humility as knowing yourself. So that humility was the way that you understand, to some extent, Thomas Aquinas would say, it's knowing how high you can reach. This is hard to say in, in, in a part of the country where the entrepreneurial impulse is very great, isn't it? Because your reach should always exceed your grasp if you think that that's something that you want to do. But the fact of the matter is, people who have some self-knowledge 
at least know something about their limitations and are willing to own up to that. But equally, they also know about their great strengths and don't hide them under a bushel, as we used to say. So humility is, is an important uh, thing to understand correctly, as is servanthood, as is servant ministry. So from Isaiah, we remind ourselves of that. And as we get close to Lent and into Lent, this idea of servant ministry is going to uh, come up again more than once. In the reading from 1 Corinthians, you know, I used to, I knew, knew this, but I never tell. When you, this reading, you open 1 Corinthians, the beginning, and it's Paul writes to Sosthenes. Well, who in the world is Sosthenes when he's home? As the English would say. <laughs> he was the leader of the synagogue in Corinth. You know, Paul, who, who believed his ministry to be a, to the Gentiles, and who is the great apostle to the Gentiles, would always come to these big cities and locations and hook up with the, the synagogue first. Because that's the tradition out of which he came. So he's writing to Sosthenes, and I suspect a lot of the Corinthian church, you know, operated out of there to some degree. But it was a place where there were all kinds of views, and Paul is beginning to talk about that in the introduction to the epistle. And obliquely, at the very least, and maybe not so obliquely, he's talking about the importance of the church. Um... You know, when I became an Episcopalian, uh, I came out of a kind of wacky, homegrown American religious tradition called Christian Science, and uh, firmly in the bosom of Mary Baker Eddy. <laughs> and I got to be about 16, and I just said, I just, I, I just can't do this anymore. It's, I can't do it. And most of my friends were Episcopalians. So I had always been attracted to the Episcopal Church and so forth. But what I realized when I started going and was involved in it was, you know what? This thing is bigger than I am. Way bigger than I am. And really, it isn't dependent on what I think about it. Or whether I believe it or don't. You know, it doesn't matter in one sense. It may matter in terms of my own uh, emotional, mental, and spiritual growth, for sure, as it does for all of us, but this thing is big. It's big. The sacraments are big. Baptism is big. The Eucharist is big. You know, the apostolic succession is big. All of the things that we have conversations about in terms of their historical nature and their origins and all, so on and so on. But I realized I was now involved in something that was big. And Paul is trying to say to a, a sort of self-important, turned inward community, a church on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement in the New Testament, the Corinthian congregation, that this is a bigger deal than merely these concerns or your own narcissistic impulses or, uh, you know, uh, it, what in the recovery movement they refer to as opera singing, I, 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 me, me, me. <laughs> right? <clears throat> so uh, those are things that uh, I thought were very, very important. So here's how Paul understands this as a model. 
We as Episcopalians believe in the church with a capital C, right? And we do not understand individual, a lot of people would interpret this as saying, St. Luke's church is church with a small c, and church with a big c is a combination of all the little c things that become the big c. No, no, no. Paul understands St. Luke's is big c. St. Andrew's is big c. And all of us big c together make big c. Right? So local and corporate is understood in this, term, in, this, in this way. You know, the big C is manifest here in our common life together as the church community. So Paul is at pains to, to say this. Uh, this. This works itself out the way we understand church is the threefold way we test for authority. What's in the Bible, what's uh, in the tradition with a capital T, and our human experience and reason and experience, you know. I went to a, a thing down in uh, Salinas yesterday uh, that was, I thought, very, very good. And the leader spoke of uh, scripture, tradition, and reason in terms of, if I can remember this, uh, she said it would be heart, mind, and habit or practice. So when you start to think about those things, when you say, uh, you know, uh, the Bible, um, our human reason and experience, and the tradition with a capital T, it embodies all of those things, doesn't it? Heart, mind, and experience. Jesus before my eyes in adoration. Jesus in my heart in communion. Jesus in my hands in cooperation. So that's what Paul's getting at in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. This time of year, we say the church is important because it is the means by which we make manifest the presence and the power of Christ. Many years ago in this diocese, there was a clergy conference that was led by Herbert O'Driscoll, who's a famous Canadian Anglican priest, and he gave this uh, presentation to the clergy on post-modernity, a very important thing for all of us need to be students of post-modernity now because we're in it. He said in the course of his, of his lectures, he said, any spirituality worth its salt institutionalizes. And so the, the idea of living in an age where we contend continuously with, I'm spiritual but not religious, right? I don't want to throw water on people's view, how they understand that, they, you know. But it's very important to, to, uh, to speak about, speak with, not against it, but just to say, you know, that's maybe not the fullest picture here. And um, there is uh, an important, the religious practice and heart-mind practice is the way in which we understand and embody our spirituality, you know, because you hear me say all the time, Spirituality is life. Thomas Merton, body, soul, mind, spirit given to God in love. Life. It isn't some abstruse set of practices. It isn't some esoteric knowledge. It isn't some location that we go off to in order to uh, get ourselves clear. You know, it's life. 
you know? Uh, Ernest may remember, uh, the presenter said something about Benedict, St. Benedict. Uh, the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Communion, is firmly embedded in St. Benedict's rule. Most people don't really get that, but the Book of Common Prayer is really a Benedictine document. And uh, Benedict said, um, you know, in so many words, spiritual maturity is a life well lived. The best kind of spirituality. So Paul is sort of setting us up for a reflection on that as we move forward. And finally, in the gospel, we have John uh, speaking about uh, Jesus' baptism in, in, in the gospel of John's version, where there's a dove lighting on him and everything, but we hear no voices. Uh, it's John the Baptist's perception of who Jesus is. And he speaks about him in this particular context. And he also speaks to him, speaks about him in a way that uh, gives us to understand that in John's gospel, we understand the servant ministry of Jesus, his self-giving. And I think without uh, doing damage to what I've just said, there's a little bit of an apology in here because John is somewhat embarrassed, John the gospel writer. Uh, with the fact that uh, there are still a lot of people around who believe that John the Baptist was the Messiah. So this section in the Gospel is the disclaimer. No, no, it's not me, it's him. It's Jesus. So uh, I want to make sure that you understand that kind of thing. But it sets us up to understand the importance of uh, servant leadership and servant ministry. So as we continue this week, I would give thanks for the opportunity to serve in big and small ways. I'm always impressed and amazed by how, how many of you do that on a daily basis, you know. Another thing yesterday which was, which was good, our job here is to understand St. Luke's Church as the center, your center, we hope, but not your circumference. <laughs> right? I say that, but what, what, what Melissa Skelton said was that we, we need to remind ourselves that uh, you need to go out and make a difference in Silicon Valley. <laughs> Not here only. You need to be uh, the leaven in the lump in the best possible way. So give a thanks for the opportunity to do that. Amen.